May 16th, 2010. It's Watt from Pedro Show.
So what from Pedro show and uh, I'm not in Pedro. I'm in Santa Monica in uh, at uh, Track 16 Gallery, and uh, we first heard some John Coltrane there. That was his last tour in Japan with the song called "Peace on Earth." His wife Alice, and Pharaoh Sanders, Rashid Ali—not the classic quartet, but his last. And then we heard something, uh, Calm Down Friend by Telepathic Friend. I'm not sure where they're from, but they sent me some music and I liked it. And I got Christine McKenna here and uh, I'm going to talk to her. Should I start? Or, yeah. Um, what's the first record you ever bought? Mm, I think it was a 45 uh, uh, American woman, they guess who? Oh, really? Yeah, pretty terrible. Huh? Yeah. No, that's actually a good song. The Butthole Surfers did a great version yeah, of it. better one. Yeah. The Grassroots started in about 68, and that was about their third hit. No, guess who? Oh! Canadian band. Oh, right. That was their only hit, wasn't it? Uh, they had some other ones, like No Sugar Tonight. Yeah. Burton Cummins. They had a, yeah, they, yeah. they had a lot of hits. Yeah. I think it was in the late 60s. Yeah. Well, what about an album, A Bigger Commitment? Yeah. Uh, I had this little record player that didn't have the little thing. It only had the fat thing for the 45, so that's what I got. And they only cost a dollar. They were really cheap. And records were like three or four dollars. Yeah. I think it was Are You Experienced? Oh. That's a very hip first choice. Uh, for an album. Yeah. And then, uh, but you know, uh, it was weird. I couldn't play it because it, the, it was only a fat thing for 45s. Uh, so I was going to have to get a record player. I got it uh, just because uh, I knew someone else did. I couldn't play it. I just did it for to belong like so stupid. So what I did was, a new thing was just coming called 8-track. And so I got 8-track cartridges, uh, which were very strange. I remember those. Uh, I went to go get albums later, but for a few years in the, when I was mm -hmm. just becoming a teenager. Well, you were a teenager when the first wave of punk was happening in L.A., right? Yeah, I was... I graduated in 76, I was 18. So were you coming up to L.A. to see shows? Uh, yeah. Uh, the drummer of the Weirdos is from Pedro. Nicky Beach? Uh-huh. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And he was walking around. They were just closing down the Fort MacArthur. Me and Dee Boone used to jam with his guy, Mark Weisswasser. They rented out, out the rec room as they were closing the thing down. They tore it all up. It's, it slips for boats now. It was lower reservation. But Nicky Beat was walking around there with the Kotex around his neck. Like a, <laughs> Those were the days. Like a necklace kind of thing. And he told us about this scene in Hollywood where people played their own songs. And uh, went up there and saw him play Weirdos. Weirdos were great. And uh, all those bands, Bags and Germs. And found out that some lived by us, like uh, Alley Cats. We're in Alameda, actually, and Suburban Lawns were in Long Beach. Uh, we never, I, I rode my bike to Hollywood 
when From I was Pedro? 15. Yeah. Whoa. I got a car when I was 16, so I didn't ride a bike anymore. But the first time I went to Hollywood was when I was 15, and I rode a, a bike. And I went up the west side, went to Strand, and all those beach towns, and then worked my way over once I hit Santa Monica. What was there in oh. town that you just felt you had to get to? I just wanted to see what it was like. Yeah. And it didn't look much different. When you think back on that, which all. which band stands out in your mind is really Oh, amazing. when I was going for gigs, well, this is what I was getting to. All I knew about Hollywood was that one bike trip. And then, like Nikki tells us about these gigs, and we start going up there and seeing shows. Because before that, my first gig was T-Rex. It was uh, Arena Rock. I'd never been to a club. So Nikki, you know, tells us about the scene, and it's in clubs. And we had never seen rock and roll in clubs. So that was all new to us. Uh, Hollywood, I didn't know it as much as, uh, I don't know, as a place. It's just a scene of all these different people. It, it seemed all, when I went and talked, the people at the gigs were very open, but they were also very bizarre and uh, singular kind of uh, characters, you know. And you could, they were all from different places. You talked to them, like none were from Pedro, hardly. Mm -hmm. Nikki, <laughs> but they were from all these different parts of LA that I didn't really know of. So it wasn't Hollywood so much as a a place, uh, homegrown people. It was these people from other parts of SoCal coming to meet there, mm -hmm. and that was very interesting because I didn't really know Pedro people since I, other mm -hmm. than there since I moved there. So it was the first time I was getting to know other people from SoCal. Were you and Dee Boone already writing songs at that point? When we went to those gigs? Mm -hmm. No. No, we didn't write songs at all. When we first started playing, it was just uh, after school and like stuff like American Woman, uh, riff over and over again for hours <laughs> and copying, trying to copy Credence and mm -hmm. uh, The Who and Alice Cooper. Blue Oyster Color, but whatever, who was simple enough to learn off the record. Uh, never thought of music as a way to express. It was like building models or something. Kind of looked like it, sort of. The gigs were, uh, I mean, if you went to an arena rock gig, you could never imagine playing one of those things. It was much different when we went and saw those bands in Hollywood. That scene looked like you could play. And you could tell that uh, they were writing their own songs, and in fact, they were just getting started. It didn't like seem like they were uh, waiting to play a long time in the bedroom, uh, copying other people's songs. So we liked that, uh, and uh, that's when we thought we should try to write songs. The Minutemen started gigging when about 1980. Yeah, well, we had a band called the Reactionaries before mm -hmm. that where we start trying to write songs. With George terrible. Hurley, the same lineup? George Hurley was a drummer, but there was a fourth guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where we first tried to uh, write songs. In 1978, we started the band. and I don't know, by the summer of 79, uh, DeBoom wanted to stop it and make another band. So in January of 80, we made Minuteman mm -hmm. and tried to be more original with our sound. We weren't so original. Well, we didn't know what to do with reactionaries. A lot of it sounds like uh, those bands we were seeing in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. We didn't. 
we didn't have experience writing. And uh, Minutemen, uh, Minutemen didn't have George Hurley at first. We had a welder from our town <laughs> named Frank Tanchi. And uh, he's from a polka band. And after two gigs, he got scared and ran, uh, quit. Yeah. And left his drums. Yeah. I saw him years later, and he told me he should have never done that. He should have stayed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You've talked a lot about how important Dee Boone was to you. What was so inspiring about well, Georgie him helped you? us, too, because when Frank left, uh, Greg Ginn had asked to make a record, so we had no drummer, and then Georgie learned all the songs in mm-hmm. like a month. Yeah. Dee Boone was, uh, oh, about music? About what? Just in, in the, uh, no, just. I mean, I wouldn't be doing music without him. Because, uh, yeah. When I met him, uh, yeah, that's the way we hung out. His mother had me play bass. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know what a bass was. You know, uh, I didn't have uh, ideas about playing. I tried it in school. With, they gave me the clarinet and after ten weeks, seventh grade. Uh, teacher told me to stop. He said I tried hard, but. Didn't. Yeah. <laughs> So I got into music to be with him, and so uh, and we had no idea really. You could. We didn't know what to do with it except to share it with each other, just to, mm-hmm. to stuff to do like when you're boys, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have to give him a lot of the credit for me being in this uh, in, in the music mm-hmm. racket. You said in, in your wonderful book, Spiels of the Minutemen, you made the point that personal connections and relations were more important than the music for you. Do you still feel that way? Well, with the mu- yeah, because I'm not a musician. I got into it to be with my friend. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I've been doing it a while. Hmm, how can I put it? Like, we're talking right now. There are professional talkers, right? That doesn't mean other people can talk, so that's that's mm-hmm. kind of what I did with the music. Now he got killed, which was a terrible thing for me, and I really didn't want think. I really didn't think people wanted to see me play without him, so I kind of stopped. And uh, some people helped me. Thurston got me playing again. Not after very long either. They wanted me. He had me on a record. With him, and so I, I started doing it again without him, and it just kept going. Uh, yeah, really. But the personal, can... even getting back. See, that was Thurston. That was a person thing. It wasn't so much music kind of thing. I, I guess I could pursue music. I have been doing it long enough now. Uh, I could pursue it as music. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, speaking of keeping going it seems like you have a gig every night of the year what have you had to sacrifice in your life to, to be as involved with music as you are mm. like touring yeah it seems you like you're always town. on the yeah. road and when you're here you're doing well, shows you know, my father was a sailor and he was never home because of the Vietnam War and that mm-hmm. so I kind of hated that but then I guess I Ended up kind of the same thing. Definitely. Yeah. Punk Navy. Yeah. <laughs> so I uh, couldn't have a family, really. Mm-hmm. I didn't want that to happen to a son or daughter or father never home. Because uh, that was my experience. Mm-hmm. 
when I got in my 20s and stuff, I got started to get to know him again. Your I, dad? Yeah. Yeah. Because I could go up there. Yeah, he retired to Fresno, and so I'd go up and see him. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very interesting. What was he like? And uh, he was a chief. Chief's like a sergeant. Mm-hmm. It was Army. But he didn't yell that much. Not like the <laughs> other ones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was very... Uh, uh, wait his words. You talk with big pauses, and uh, he ran away from the Navy when he was seventeen. But what that's how he, he saw the world. What so did it, he run away from? He has little farm town, and it's not happening for him. And plus, he could see stuff, which which I could relate to him because that's how I got to see stuff was torn. Mm-hmm. And we could, when I was a boy, he'd come home, you know, for a little while, and he'd take me driving and tell me about all he saw for hours and hours. And then oh. I got to a point where I could tell him about my mm-hmm. tours. Did he understand your music? He only saw me play once. And where where was that gig? He was in Fresno. And how Spaghetti was it? Spaghetti Factory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how was it? I had a fever. Oh. And uh, sometimes you got to play sick and... He conked at his pad, and he was really happy. He didn't have music people in his family. The whole music thing for him was trippy. He thought it was something I did with Dee Boone. He didn't know, in fact, I was keep going. Yeah. So I started sending him postcards from tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was like, wow, you're like a sailor. He couldn't believe all these towns I was playing. He had no idea. And then my sister gave him some of my records. I never talked to him about the things. There was a weird thing when we were bo- when I was a boy, maybe 19, 18, and the punk came for me and uh, getting into the scene, and it was very minority thing, and especially for somebody like my father in the Navy and have no idea. And he came to talk to me. He came to Pedro. He got a beer, a six-pack of beer to drink beers with. And then it came to the thing, you know, he's going to ask me, so what's this punk shit about? Yeah. You know, what's this? And I told him, well, yeah, me and D. Boom are going to write our own songs and play gigs and, you know, put out a record. And he was like, yeah, yeah, well, what's it all about, though, really? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I go, what do you mean, you know? And he goes, is it socialist? <laughs> That's what I did. I laughed. There was a chair there, and he grabbed the leg, because we're sitting on the deck, and he grabs the leg of the chair, and he looked at me. He had hazel eyes, but they would get gray when he was pissed. Uh-huh. It was like slate. His eyes were like slate. And then he just let go of that chair. And I didn't mean to laugh at him. you know. I just didn't uh-huh. expect that, you know. You know, you kind of was socialist, though, if you read the lyrics. Yeah, but my pop, uh, yeah, but he was thinking, I think, more like uh, treason uh, uh-huh. or something. Right. Or oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, hippie, yeah. Uh, the military. Things might have gone up. Uh-huh. Well, he had some weird things about the military, especially when he retired. He wanted to go protest Oliver North. Really? Yeah, he was going through a lot of change. He joined really young, you know. Uh-huh. So, uh yeah, he was a guy who voted for Nixon and Reagan the first time, but not the second. He was really angry at this North guy. Was he interested in music? 
My pop, I told you, he didn't know anything No, well, your music, but did he listen to jazz or any, you know, pop music? He had some. He was into Mills Brothers, I know that. I saw some of his stuff. And, uh, but he didn't know firsthand musician people, uh, music, lifestyles of people. I mean, I didn't either until I started uh, playing around with them and, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I noticed a lot of cats in bands had music people in their family. The mother, a little bit. Her daddy did some uh, vaudeville. He told me some interesting tour stories. Two or three dollars a night, you know. Wow. People chucking shit at him. And what was his? Did he have? He an played instrument? guitar, and a boy would sing with him. So they were duet. Vaudeville would have a whole bunch of things. You'd have jugglers and mm-hmm. people doing poems and uh, comedy and music too. And so he'd be part of these traveling. Shows he did a little of that, not a long time, but so I have a little bit of music, but not on on my father's side at all. So uh, I don't know. I never asked him about the, uh, how I rated mm-hmm. with my own stuff. Yeah. You know. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, what's your favorite Minutemen song? Hmm. I don't know, history lesson. Really? <laughs> Why? I guess. I never thought about my music. Because it was me trying to relate to some younger hardcore kids about me and D. Boone. And I thought that said a lot about her band for them mm-hmm. in the moment. How did you meet Greg Ginn and Raymond and get involved with all the SSD people? Yeah. Yeah, in fact, if they were having uh, their second gig and they are handing out flyers. When the Clash played uh, over here at Santa Monica Civic, yeah, the Dills and Bo Diddley, and uh, we saw this flyer and it was like they were going to have a punk gig in Pedro, and we couldn't believe that. And they asked why and said because we're a punk band in Pedro, and they couldn't believe there was a punk band in Pedro, so they asked us to open up. So that's how we met them. And uh, yeah, a couple months later we were SST002, so it was by accident. Mm-hmm. Why has Raymond been such an important teacher for you? You've talked a lot about... He knows a lot. But what did, what did he know about that meant a lot to you? I mean, he knows a lot about economics. Is that interesting to you? The way he does it. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he went to school for, but he don't talk a lot about economics. Sometimes. He can talk about anything, and it's interesting for me. Yeah, he's he very has brilliant. insight... And uh, he's funny, and he's just taught me a lot. He knew a lot more than me about uh, artistic things. But I think I know some stuff. Learn him some stuff too. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> you don't know yeah. sometimes. When you first started playing with Iggy, were you intimidated by him? Intimidated. I want to do good for him. Yeah, he's, uh, I mean, the, the whole Stooges thing was uh, an intense experience for me because, uh, you know, that music was uh, big for a punk scene. Like when I went up to Hollywood and met all those people out of town and didn't know shit about them, one thing in common was Stooges. That was trippy, how everybody liked them. Because when... My town, when we were young, everyone hated them. 
and here was a scene everybody loved. So everybody knew these songs, music, and then, yeah, I, I'm going to play those songs with him. It was because of Ronnie. Ronnie brought me in. Oh, how did you know him? Ronnie actually came to my gigs when I'd come play Detroit. Oh. This guy named the Colonel Brown. There was a movie Todd Haynes made called Velvet Goldmine. Love that movie. And he wanted, there's kind of a Bowie guy, and there's a guy who's kind of egg crossed with Kurt Cobain. It should have been all egg, maybe, but for some, maybe because of those days, I don't know, the guy's kind of mixed. But they wanted some music of Stooges, so people helping them with the music said, hey, we know uh, Ron Ashton. They set Steve Shelley out there to, because he's Michigan, but Midland. But he went out there and played drums with Ronnie. He got some songs together. They brought him to New York, and they asked me to play the bass. And we did music for that movie. Are you in the band? Like when no, you we were Mc- making the music. Oh. We're not being filmed. Yeah. We just made music. So you did the music like when he performs TVI and that's that stuff? That's us. That's oh, me, me okay. So I, that's when I first got to record with Ronnie. Then... Uh, few years later the sickness almost killed me and uh, they had to put tubes in me and shit mm-hmm. these doctors uh, misdiagnosed me the county doctors saved my life and I but they had to put tubes in me so I couldn't play bass and it was the first time I had to stop since I started and so when I tried to do it again I couldn't how long did you the, have to stop shit. I don't know like Eight months, something like that. And uh, I atrophied. I couldn't play, and I was kind of panicked. So I started doing Stooges songs to get strong. There's not a lot of chord changes. Maybe a little more with James Williamson, but especially that those first two albums, it was a lot of feel. So uh, it helped me get strong. And right at the same time, Jay Maskus was making a solo album. And he asked me to play the bass on a tour and he said uh, oh no that happens after I ask him to do them <laughs> yeah not only am I playing the songs I want to make some copy bands I go back to my uh, youth but just do Stooges so I asked him and uh, his the dinosaur drummer Murph to do some and I did some out west here too with Perkins and Peter from Porto for Pyros and then he asked me to do this and he said it was hard for him to sing every song every night, so why don't we do some Stooges? And we came through Ann Arbor, and he asked me to uh, call him Ronnie. So I did, and he came down there to Blind Pig, and we jammed with him, and Jay took him on tour. And we were playing the last third of the set with Stooges songs with Ron Ashton. And then uh, Thurston was curating some Altamar party and asked to get his brother, his brother was living in his truck. So he rented some drums and so me and Jane are playing with both the Ashton brothers. Stooges songs, you know. Mm-hmm. And Egg heard about this. And he asked them to play on his Skull Ring album. And then I was on tour and my second man was in Tallahassee. I got a call and it was Egg and he said, Ronnie says you're the man. So I flew over to Coachella and did that gig with him. Oh, I remember that show. Yeah, so it's seven years. So I've actually been with them longer than I was a minute man now. How is Iggy different from people's 
uh, he has a, a certain public image. Is he different from that, really? What's his public image? Wild. Yeah, he's wild. Yeah. But he's very intelligent. Mm -hmm. They're all very interesting. Mm -hmm. Him with culture, Ronnie was with history, and Scotty with nature, mm -hmm. Steve McKay and politics. Uh, when Egg's on stage, I mean, he's kind of, yeah, out of his mind. Mm -hmm. At the same time, he hears everything. He knows he's like a conductor. He's very, it's a duality. Uh, he's, all of them, they're Midwest guys, you know, they're uh, very plain speaking. They're not so much jive talk. Mm -hmm. uh, he reminds me of my pop a little bit. Mm. Scotty too, Scotty even more stoic. Not, not just, yeah. uh, very careful with the words and uh, matter of fact. And, you know, it's, I'm little, I'm young in that band, you know. They're, they're 60s guys. I was only a boy in the 60s. So it's it, very interesting for me to be around them, that a whole, whole different sensibility. Mm -hmm. I'm 11 years younger than Ig, but he's from, from another time. Uh, they're responsible for punk thing, but they're not kind of... They're not us. Right. Yeah. Different, but very important to us. I can't imagine we, us even having a scene without that band. So I feel big responsibility when I'm playing with them as far as their legacy. and mm -hmm. I owe them uh, all the good I can do. Do you it should all be write, about you, that in your music anyway, really. Do you guys so. write new songs together as a band? They made an album in 2006. And I played the bass on it. But were you part of the writing process? No, they had already the songs. They had done them in Florida. Mm -hmm. And then I came on after. Yeah. They brought me in. To uh, In fact, he took me to his house for three days. In Florida? Yeah, and rented me a kayak. Mm -hmm. And uh, took me to the beach, laid out in the sea. He goes, hey, you ever wear shorts? <laughs> you never <laughs> see me in shorts. <laughs> took me to the beach and laid in the sun with him. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. And we went over every song, and he came up with bass ideas. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I play with them and tr try my hardest, but I'm not really, I'm not from, I'm not Stooges. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of stepson yeah. or something. Yeah. Are there areas of music that you're interested in that you haven't really explored yet? Yeah. The bass. Well, I He's mean, got like a lot more free jazz, country music. It seems like you've done a lot. I've done some stuff like that. It's scary. Mm. I've done pop music. I've, I've done reggae. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who'd you do reggae with? I did one of these, uh, what were they called? Sublime. Did some of their stuff. I was asked to do tribute. Uh, genres of music. You know, a lot of that to me is about marketing. Music is music, and you take yourself to different places uh, that are challenging. It's more natural. Music doesn't really know about style. Styles are up to people, and they get quantified in these kind of genre things, but I 
again, I think that's from marketing. So any place I can put myself on the base and I can learn stuff is uh, inter interesting for me. No, I think we're at the end of the first hour, though, and I should uh, s switch this over. Not that incredible. Well, yeah, it is. <laughs> Uh, it's May 16, 2010, the second hour of the Lot from Pedro show.
I just played some music. I played uh, Get Me to the World from Instant Party. Uh, I Love Your Eyes by Drunken Instrument Corporation. A lot of this stuff I play is from uh, young people making their own music. I don't really play commercial stuff. Then Big Time Bum, Love My Dead Cock. This is Stooges. Somebody gave this to me in London. There's a little period after Funhouse where James Williamson and Ronnie are both playing guitar. A guy named Jimmy Rekka was on the bass. So that's where that's from. And then something from Bass Country, this guy sent me called Flesh and Bones, but Moby Dick. So people are sending uh, you music all the time? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or after gigs, mm -hmm. uh, people hand me their things. It's much different than the old days when it took money to go into the studio. It's, it's very cheap right. now to make your own music or record it. And, very interesting. How often do you like, do you find surprising, interesting things? All the time. Yeah? Yeah, I try to keep open mind about it. Yeah. Uh, not uh, have somebody figure it out until I hear the music. Yeah. Even the band name. Even yeah. Somebody with a bad band name could have <laughs> some good music. Yeah, yeah, like, I met these cats in Tokyo. They're called Light. L-I-T-E, that's got to be the worst name you could ever have for your band. Yeah, it's bad. I told them about it. They're young. They're in their 20s. I said, there's 
you know, Miller actually owns a copyright on that. Really? Yeah, the other light the beers board? have to be spelled L-I-G-H-T, but oh. they, they, they... <laughs> Silly. Yeah, but they didn't know, you know. They didn't even know it was about beer, you know. It was like uh, lights. Yeah. But they, they don't really have our alphabet, so they didn't know. But they're a really good band. Maybe like kind of Stephen Reich and oh. Television Combined yeah. or something. They're very interesting. Uh, so I don't even try to judge by the band name or how people look or anything. I just listen. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of good stuff. I'm never hurting for music to play on this show. Yeah. I, you know, I'm not really trying to play stuff people expect to hear. It's stuff that I like, but it's not stuff I make. You know, it's been given to me. So... So most of the music today is young bands, new music from young bands. Well, the Stooges ain't that, you know. Do you have Stooges on there? Yeah, I just told you. I played this version with uh, Ronnie and James both. Because everybody thinks that when James Williamson was in the band, Ronnie went to bass. Mm -hmm. But actually, there's a period where they're both on guitar. And in fact, there was one gig where, uh, see, this is a great thing being with him. You get to hear all these stories. But uh, Steve McKay played the drums because Scotty took the truck under a bridge. Well, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't get through it because the bridge was too low. <laughs> and uh, he went flying through the windshield and all, busted up his face and the other guys riding with him. So they had to do game with Steve. Steve didn't really know drums, so they, they could have to run up there and show him how the song started and start pounding on it. But there's this weird period in the uh, first part of 1971 where there's uh, both these guys on guitar. Mm-hmm. And I uh, thought it was interesting. That I guess there was, uh, I don't know, seven or eight gigs, and somebody's put together like a, a five-disc thing if they got wow. tapes of these shows. Yeah. How good are the tapes? <laughs> yeah. Who you cares? You can tell by hearing it and stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, in those days, people going to gigs or something, cassette tapes probably. I remember myself, first tapes I made, uh, not at gigs, but there'd be TV shows like In Concert or Don Kirshner, and I would tape it right from the TV with these, you know, the two buttons you push down. Uh-huh. You'd hear this huge-ass hum and... Uh-huh. <laughs> So, but that's all there was in those yeah. days. Yeah. Now we just did these. Stooges played in London at the. It used to be called the Odeon, but Hammersmith Apollo. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the gig was over, they were su- selling uh, the gig on a USB stick. Wow! Right there. Do you think that's a good thing? Why not? Because part of the romance of music for me is that you hear about a show and you know you weren't there and it, it gets oh. extra power. You never bought a live album? Um, I generally don't like live albums. Oh, because that's what this is like. Yeah. 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 The live album. But like right there, right yeah. when you get done playing it. That's, that's It's scary. Yeah. I blew one clam, it was at the end, you know. Fuck. Now, you know, of course, I'm going to always hear that. Mm-hmm. Uh, be- when you know you're being recorded like that, it's kind of scary. There was one in Lille, France, too, week before. So we've already had two gigs that are out mm-hmm. you can get. 
let alone those old days when they were, yeah, scouring for bootleg. Yeah, that's what happens anyway, right? There's bootlegs. It's not like these things don't get out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so why stoo- not? Are the Stooges on a label? No. No. So who put out Skull Ring? Skull Ring and The Weirdness, those, that Stooges album, those came out on, uh, what's it called? EMI? So they do have a record deal. No, no, I think it was Ig mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. I don't really know. Uh, was that a one-off thing? Mm-hmm. I don't know. So he's kind of in charge of his own career now as opposed to being... Now? Uh, Ig did, was a solo guy for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. The, the last gig is that Metallic KO one. That's the last gig. There's no more Stooges after that. After that, it's all Ig. And right away, he did that Kill City thing with James. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, those were just demos, and it, but it helped him get a record deal. He, he started way back then uh, and kept going. How many solo albums? 15, 20? Yeah, he's got he's a lot. He's a lot of records. Right, right. So he's been in charge of his own career. Uh, he didn't really talk with those guys a lot in between, but I can tell when he started, play, especially with the Ashton brothers, he really liked playing with them again, mm-hmm. you know? And then they were a team, right. three three people. It wasn't like uh, he's bossing them around or anything, mm-hmm. not at all. Does Iggy know the Minutemen music? Iggy knows about a lot of music. Very, he knows about more con- current music than I do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's very engaged with culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's uh, very aware. He's not hermit. Have you ever read his autobiography? That one. I, I want need more. more. I need more. Yeah. It's so genius. I love that book. He's very funny. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I think he wrote it with some lady. Yeah. Right? Don't you have like a musical liaison with somebody in Italy? Didn't you just make a record over there? Yeah, I did. In Who November. Who are those people that you December. were playing with? They're younger guys, a 30-year-old. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stefano Paglia, Andrea Belfi. And uh, I went over there and did six gigs and made an album. It's, it's almost finished. It's being mixed now. What's it called? The Sogno del Marinaio. And what's the Which group means, uh, That's the name of the oh, okay. group, and it means a sailor's dream. Oh. Yeah. That's you. Marinaro, like Marinero. Uh-huh. Marinero, huh? Yeah, yeah. Marinaro. Yeah. Their thing, sueño, sonio, Italian and Spanish, uh-huh. they're close. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, Stefano was from Genoa, which was a sailor town. I don't know. We came up with that idea for it. I had never played with them before. I, actually, the internet has changed a lot of this kind of stuff for me where I can just play with people. I just made an album with the guy in Canada. I never even met this guy. That is so weird. What he about sends me the songs and I played on it. What about the vibe, the magic between well, you and but, Yeah, you listen to it and you try to... It's music for music. That's all it is, is just sounds. Don't even know the man. I don't even know what he looks like. What motivated you Steve. to want to do it? You just like the music? I, th- I was telling you before, uh, if I can put my bass in a place where it's challenging, I'm going to learn something. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to do. 
uh, he he just seemed very genuine and not about anything except like, hey, here's my music. What do you think? And so I thought, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And he gave me 10 songs, and I put the bass on it. And God, it's, called, uh, it's called uh, The Lighthouse, and mm-hmm. the album's called Channels. And uh, so I'd uh, take the songs one at a time and listen to them and say, well, what can I do with this here? And I'd try working the bass part to it, and I'd send it back to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Uh, how did the kayaking thing to me it's for you? it's a lot more pure than maybe the social thing uh-huh. social Could, thing of course has got its place like that those italianos uh one of them rode in a truck with me in the van with me when I did a tour in Italy five years ago, and that's all I knew him for. I didn't really know he played music and stuff actually him and Andrea are from uh avant garde kind of school of music. So I just thought, whoa, my mama's people are from Italy. It was just great. They cooked for me every day. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was great, you know, and they played their hearts out. And hmm. The way I got into music was an accident and uh, uncomplicated, and I don't see why that should change so much. Uh, what about the kayak? How did you? Well, I just what made me think of it is you did this record in Italy, a sailor's dream. The Canadian record was the lighthouse. They both have sort of nautical themes. And yeah. I, how did you get involved with the kayak, which was a crucial part yeah. of the photographs you're taking? Yeah. Well, um, I told you I rode up to Hollywood on a bicycle when I was 15. Well, when I was 16, I got a car. And I stopped riding bicycle. I didn't ride bicycle again for 22 years, because I thought it was for little kids. And uh, it was just fucked up. This guy was moving to Atlanta, and uh, he sold me a 10-speed for five bucks. Wow. Yeah, and I just remembered seeing so many people's pads, bicycles as clothes racks. And I said, I'm not going to let that happen, so I'm going to ride this thing. Now, I got terrible knees. And I, I did it. I started writing music. I wrote my first opera on it. You know, I started listening. It was just way different. I ride way early in the morning. But I have bad knees. I had surgeries on my knees in my 20, early 20s. And every day was starting to really hurt, hurt them. Actually made them stronger in some ways, but in other ways... You know, they're like cassava melons. Mm. So I thought about, well, I had a friend named Marty who do these dragon boat things, you know, these outriggers, mm-hmm. Catalina. Like, I didn't want to do that, I and mean, that's too much. But here's the harbor, and what about a kayak, you know? Because it's all waste above. And I'm by the water here, and I love the water. And my father made me learn how to sail when I was a teenager, and shit. But then that's too much trouble. But with the kayak, I could just stick it in, my bo- in the van, you know, and always have it and just go out there. And I could alternate the days of being on a bicycle. So it would give my knees a break. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing that about eight years. Wow. So, and it's its own thing. Mm-hmm. It's different than the bike. I mean, it's about rhythm, it's about listening, it's about being aware. 
the sea is very intense, you have to have respect for it. You never go out to sea, though. You're yeah, I always, do. Like, how I far? I always go out to sea. How far? You know, out of the breakwater. Sometimes I go on the ocean side and I go straight out in. But when you're in a kayak, you're pretty low, so if there's any kind of surf... <laughs> I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah, a lot of people are scared. They think you roll over and stuff. Have you ever been scared out there? Yeah, yeah. a little bit, because uh, if the sea, the sea can turn uh, scary fast. Yeah. You have to have big respect. And it's you can't be too scared, though, because that'll give you problems. So you... You have to have respect, but uh, don't panic. But when she gets all big and heavy and is like heaving you, it's intense. Have you ever been thrown out of your boat? No. Okay, good. No. The paddle is kind of like a balance bar. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't have to uh, worry about flipping off. I mean, mine, you, if that happened, it would swamp anyway because it has a big hole would fill up with water those are for little ones i guess with a, a skirt mm -hmm. and uh, there's different kinds of kayaks uh, but people once they try it they see how different it is than their preconceptions it's actually a lot more enjoyable yeah and not so scary but you still have to have respect i always use a life jacket you never listen to an ipod when you're out there do you no why well, I don't know. You see people with iPods everywhere, I wondered. No, no, but the, um, one of the things is about listening. Mm -hmm. Same with the bicycle. I didn't really listen before, you know. So there's nature. A lot of man, too, because it's harbor. So there's a lot of the work in the harbor going on. I don't know. It's just yeah. trippy to listen to. It's a couple hours of my morning on the bike or the uh, kayak. So I can get to that other stuff mm -hmm. later. Um, but there's the little nature San Pedro too the way it is is geography is uh, more um, uh, lucky than maybe Silver Lake or something <laughs> West Hollywood lucky lucky landscape. yeah for geography for nature for trees and uh, cliffs and uh -huh. harbor you know what I mean so we, we have that in my town yeah. uh, do you think you'll ever live anywhere else I don't know if I want to. Well, then you don't have to. Okay. <laughs> I like visiting everywhere. Yeah, and yeah. you do, constantly. Yeah. Last year was my 61st tour. Do you ever not feel like doing that? Touring? Yeah, do you ever just think, ugh, I don't want to do it? No, it's an adventure. It's very exciting. Yeah, sure. You know, but yeah. I like having Pedro Town, but mm -hmm. I like seeing other people's towns and meeting other people. And mm -hmm. uh, it's the only way I really, I never really. One time I took three days and I went to Dublin for the Ulysses Centennial. Oh wow! I went to a town without playing a gig. Yeah. Not much. How did it feel? Trippy. Yeah. Yeah, also a lot of the, I was caught up in the thing, though, because a lot of the stuff in the book is there. Mm -hmm. I could walk there. And that was a big book for me when I was It's a huge younger. book. <laughs> what are you reading now? I used to be, uh, oh, what I'm reading now, I, 
God, he's an Irish. It's funny. He's an Irish author. Paul McGarren is I've his never name. Heard of him. And the sun rises. Those that see the sunrise, it's, it's, it's very. Cat, uh, an Irish guy living in Tokyo, gave it to me when I was there, and it's written very slow, very pastoral. Uh, interesting. You know, the Irish do really have a command on the English language. And uh, just before that, I did uh, Tommy Pynchon's new one. Uh, uh, that, that Inherent Vice. Inherent Vice, the detective yeah. one. Did with you hippies. like it? It was funny. Yeah. Kind of like uh, Crying of Lot 49 a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. More funny. Yeah. You know, you write really well. Do you plan to... Have you thought about doing a book? No. I, I, the I writing in your book is great. <laughs> I guess that's well, I write idea. diaries. Uh-huh. You know, I don't know about... I love reading. I love writers. They're a big inspiration to me, but I, I don't know about doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It seems I, I have a lot to do on bass. Maybe if my hands got hurt. Horrible thought. Yeah, but I mean, life is life. My pop is always said, "Have a Bravo." Yeah. <laughs> Have a Plan B. Yeah. So I've thought about it. What would happen if my hands got hurt? What would you do? Maybe write. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, doing the diaries practice. I don't know. I think that's a good idea. When you listen to your really early music, how does it sound to you now? Like the reactionaries? Yeah. It just we really uh, put that out. It's pretty terrible. <laughs> really? Yeah. In what way? Pretty embarrassing. I didn't know what I was fucking doing. I didn't. But the spirit out. must be very pure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, like, I can't believe De Boone tolerated it. He's a very <laughs> open-minded man. Of course, he was saving all his songs for the next band, uh-huh. for Minutemen. Yeah. I didn't know, so it was me putting up all these corny, crummy songs. But you gotta start somewhere, and yeah. uh, I just didn't know, you know. It, Did you say some that of was the Minutemen stuff uh, really amazes me? I, I can't believe I was part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty trippy for me. So the reactionaries that was just released. Yeah, because we only made one practice tape. And that's it. Actually, there was two tapes, yeah. Uh, we made, this guy, Joe Sindesich, came in and recorded us in the practice pad uh, behind George Hurley's Ma's house. And I made two cassettes from it, and I kept one and I gave one to Brandon. It was the first time we actually asked somebody to do gigs. And uh, I never heard from him. He couldn't find it. I asked about him years after that, but he had the only other reactionary tape. So I had the one tape, and this cat, a younger man in Pedro named Craig Ibarra, asked to put it out mm-hmm. after all these years. It was never supposed to be uh, an album or anything. It was something uh, like to get gigs or something, let people know. Mm-hmm. It was only 10 of our songs. Mm-hmm. Was he able to clean up the sound on the cassette? <laughs> yes, I don't know. It sounds very bad. Still. Yeah, you know, it's it is for what it is. You know, and people can get it on your website, or is it in record stores? No, it's at WaterUnderTheBridgeRecords.com. Oh, 
There's links on my website to it, to Craig Gabari put it out. What he did was he put that, that tape out on one side, and the other side he got some contemporary Pedro young people, musicians, to, like, redo the songs. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> How is it? How are their versions? They're, <laughs> they're probably playing better than we are. <laughs> you know? I don't know. It's Yeah. So where, do you going, where are you going next on your next tour? Before tour, I go to New York City to finish my third opera. So, yeah, you mentioned opera. When did mm -hmm. you start writing operas? You know, the first one was 97, contemplating the engine room. Mm -hmm. I kind of wrote for the Minuteman and Dee Boone. Mm -hmm. And then 2004 was the second one about that sickness. That almost killed me. What's it called? Second Man's Mill Stand. And uh, this third one is Hyphenated Man. They all got a uh, different kind of inspiration, besides the plot, you know. The first one I used a lot of the Sand Pebbles by Richard McKenna and some Ulysses. Like I put the whole life of our band in a day. And then the second one I used Divine Comedy from Dante, the Commedia. And now this third one I used Hieronymus Bosch. I, when he got killed, it was hard for me to listen to Minuteman. Boom. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I didn't. And then um, there was a documentary made called We Jam Econo. These guys, Tim and Keith, it made in 2005. So I, they wanted me to talk about it, the band. And so I had to listen to the music again. They had all this live footage people sent them. Really? Yeah, yeah. There's... The whole thing's like five and a half hours. It's a double DVD. Yeah. And uh, so I was listening again to the music, and it was just a pretty trippy, all these little songs. So, yeah, my new thing is 30 little songs. And it reminded me of kind of Bosch, this uh, Dutch painter from 500 years ago. He used these little creatures in his things to make up a big work, all these little uh, amalgams of uh, combinations of things, whatever. Devils, demons, Oni. And so I thought, well, maybe this is kind of like uh, one of our records or one of our uh, gigs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I went and wrote it on one of his guitars. I showed Tom Watson. And then got Raul Morales in there to play drums with us and showed him the drum parts. And then I had him record it, just them too because I, I had, didn't want it to be too much like Minuteman. So I thought I'd get rid of the only Minuteman. So now I'm gonna go back and put the bass on and finish it. Have the operas been staged anywhere? Third, no, no. Well, let's stage one of them. Yeah. Well, you know, the first one was very emotional for me. It had a very sad ending. Mm -hmm. And I did it for 14 months, and it was hard for me, emotionally. And then the second one was that sickness shit. And even though it was happy ending, I didn't die. It was too much. I did that for nine months. Mm -hmm. And it just, I had to relive that every night doing it. So I haven't done either one of those again. Is it cathartic to do them? Or is it just I'm glad I did them. I don't yeah. know. It hurts a lot. Yeah, what's it called? Emp empathy? Yeah. Now, Hyphenated Man is a little bit different. We'll see when I start doing it. But it's more in the moment. It's 
more about middle middle age maybe or something no tragedy punk uh, well one was happy ending that's mm -hmm. why they call it a comedia huh? mm -hmm. but I guess opera is supposed to be tragic I was talking to Petra about doing a fourth one maybe because everybody's thinking about I was telling somebody in England about it you know and Oh, this kind of uh, traditional opera mm -hmm. singing. So maybe we do a fourth one and she'll sing like this. She says uh, it's been a long time since she used her opera chops anyway. So mm -hmm. we have this thing called Pelican Man, which is bass and violin. And maybe I'll do one like that so people can relate to it. Because I call them operas because they're stories. Mm -hmm. They have beginning, middle, and ends. Although this new one is a little different. Have it's they been performed metal. with sets and costumes? And no. Me and my trios. Uh -huh. One was uh, Black Gang. Mm -hmm. The other one was Second Man. Mm -hmm. And, uh, no, you just get up there. I go up there on the mic and I said, I'm going to play you a really weird long song. Mm -hmm. And, you know, an hour later I'd be done. <laughs> and, yeah, you know. It's, mm -hmm. One thing about coming from my uh, old days of punk is I think you just don't care what people think <laughs> it's a great attitude so you just put it out there and uh if it's terrible okay they have every right to think that but if if i compromise too much i'll end up with uh, nothing yeah very dilute kind of thing i feel much sorrier for later mm -hmm. so, have the operas been recorded yeah oh. both of them on columbia uh-huh they're on columbia yeah, I was on that label for 14 years. Wow. Yeah, they were very nice to me. I mean, the, the first one, I went up to the building in New York City, 550 Madison. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they call it 550 Death Star. You know, I would go up to the top floor and there's the boss, Mr. Einer. And mm -hmm. I said, I want to do an opera about three guys in a boat. <laughs> He well, he had a brother who drives a truck, and we talked about that for a while. And then he said, do it. And, you know, I never had to do a demo for those people. Or they were always very nice to me. I never took tour support. I never have any big label horror stories. Yeah, that's amazing. I don't know why. Because they're usually not, they're not a philanthropic organization. Columbia. Their first record cup. I know. Yeah. They had Billie Holiday and Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. and yeah, it's a great record company. Well, I don't know. Maybe I was 11 years SST, you know, I uh -huh. independent. I just brought over the same things I learned yeah. there, right? And yeah. I didn't expect people to, I don't know, mm -hmm. attend me, flatter kind of right, shit, right. you know. I just did what I did and yeah. They were very nice to me, and I, I, I don't think I have a charm or anything. It wasn't bullshit. I mean, I just You're pretty charming. Played what I did. <laughs> don't be coy. You know, You're pretty charming. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, on that racket, there's a lot of hustlers trying to use charm and stuff. Yeah. I, don't, I think they would be uh, onto that. I don't, I don't know what it was, but the, my first two operas are on there. Mm -hmm. And now you were saying before it's different days. It is, mm -hmm. and so. Uh, I'll wait till this is done to find out. How, to how many out. records have you put out? I don't know, a bunch. Like 30 or something? I got a, I got a bunch right now in the, in the thing. 
Yeah. Actually, for a, f- a few years there, I was doing too many gigs mm-hmm. uh, compared with recording. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think. Has Dose made a record? Uh, yeah, we just got done with our fourth one. Oh, wow. Okay. It's a lot yeah. to keep up with. <laughs> yeah. What, happens when, you, what happens when you get tired? I conk. <laughs> for how long? What do you do? <laughs> uh... Well, you know, middle age, it's harder to hold pisses. Yeah. <laughs> so it ain't a long time. Yeah. What's um, the worst thing about getting older? The body. Yeah. You yeah. think the brain gets better? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the brain is probably worse younger. It's more uh, overconfident mm-hmm. and stupid. Yeah. Yeah, you know everything. It's not yeah. a bad feeling, really. <laughs> Yeah, well, I like this feeling better. Yeah. The body is a little more broken. Uh-huh. But uh, uh, I, I don't want to be young again. Mm-hmm. You have to go through all that stupid shit. Yeah. yeah. Just me personally. I mean, everybody's yeah, got yeah, their own thing. <laughs> I would never want to have to go through that. Yeah, I agree. Shit I had to go through to be now. Yeah. So Good. Uh, I pushed pretty hard back then, too. You still do. And uh, I could handle it. I almost died of pneumonia at 22, though, too hard. I had three jobs and what school. Kind of and uh, I was talking to that guy about one of them there. I was a pot and pan boy. I was yeah. a meat reader. I was yeah. uh, ticket, getting the tickets from the Catalina boat. And then I was doing the band, too, and it wore me down, and I got walking pneumonia and that went into deep pneumonia. Almost killed me. Were you in the hospital? Yeah. They had bags of ice between my legs and my arms. It was the weekend Darby died, John Lennon. Oh, December 1980. Yeah. Yeah. I was 22. Yeah. Well, not yet, on the 20th, so it was a couple weeks away. Mm -hmm. But uh, I got well the next week. You just bounce back when you're there. Yeah. And I never even wrote a song about it, but when I was 42 and almost died, I I wrote a whole opera. Yeah. (laughs) That was, and it was yeah. more stretched out. It was 38 days of fever, and it was mm-hmm. just fucked up. It was yeah. horrible. But I made it. We're glad of that. Yeah. yeah. You, want, you want me to play some more music? Yeah, play okay. some more music.
I think you blew me first. What the fuck you talking about? You blew me first. Nah, nah, you blew me first. Nah, wise guy, you blew me first.
Well, from Pedro Show, I played On Our Way to Moving On Our Way by Sagatti. Sagatti's band I'm going to play with Tuesday and Wednesday. Tuesday with Dose, Wednesday with uh, Missing Man. Dose in uh, Echo Curio, Echo Park. And uh, Missing Man Wednesday in Quesera, Long Beach. And they're a great band. They're wild. And then I uh, love your... Uh, no, you don't join. Go and do what you please by all for now. They got the piano player from Chicago. Oh, he ain't from Italy. Yeah, he's the only one who ain't. Uh, he's from San Francisco. And I'm going to do something with him in August. And uh, John Dietrich from Deerhoof. Hmm. And uh, Tim Barnes from Louisville. And then, uh, yeah, something from Italy, Tefanto by Giovanni Aldopogen. And Italian fight song by Potty Mouth, I think they're from Hollywood. And then The Voice from the Border by Sachiko. And we're at the end of the second hour of the Lot for Pedro show. May 16, 2010, hold tight for our thing. Up at Paul Beattie's place. Yeah, let's talk about it. Uh, May 16, 2010. It's the third hour of the Waffle Pedro show. I got uh, Robert Tall Bob here. Uh, we're talking about the older days, Walsh Berman. There's a book here. Right. Christine published that book when uh, he had a show, you know. Yeah, right. Now, you... You come out. You you don't come from San Francisco Bay Area. No, I come from Wichita. Yeah, from right. The vortex. Charlie Plymel. Yeah, Charlie and I went to the university there when it was Wichita U. Yeah. He gives me credit for talking him into it. I guess I did, but uh, you know, Charlie was some kind of weird as a specialist. You know, we used to all take bennies and go to parties and things, and uh, uh, and we read books and one thing. You know, we were i.e. intellectual or something, but um, <clears throat> anyway, I went to school to uh, uh, to study art, and uh, Jim Davis, who Charlie writes about, uh, was a bellboy. I was a bellboy. I'd been in reform school, and I got out, and I got a job that was the closest thing I could to being able to steal, which was being a bellboy, <laughs> but it also t- sort of taught me humility and to be yeah, sure. of service, and, and, it, and it fit into my kind of... Uh, uh, Who's the guy that wrote Guys and Dolls? Um, the musical? Yeah, yeah. Frank Lesson. Now, the. Uh, Is that it? No, it's not Guys and Dolls. It, anyway, it fit into that kind of world, you know, the, the make believe gangster world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David Runyon, yeah. David Runyon. It, it, into okay. that kind of uh, mistaken idea I had about life, which I got from the movies. Which had put me in reform school. But anyway, <laughs> as I'm sort of slowly getting out of that, I had a job as a bellboy. Yeah. And the head bell captain was an artist. And he told me, he said, man, I showed him some of my stuff. He said, uh, you ought to uh, come to school. You can go to college. I said, no, no, I went to reform school. I didn't go to high school. Yeah. He said, oh, it don't matter. I'll show you how to get around all that. So that's how I went. And then uh, the next year, I told Charlie, I said, hey, this place is good. You got to come, and it's uh, you know I figured I I never learned to read and write really, and yeah. but I was motivated, so I did yeah. all right, you know, and I mostly took art courses. So Charlie said, "Well, good, I'll try it." Of course, Charlie had to start off with philosophy, you know, because he, 
kind of mind, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, but you know, we had read Nietzsche and you know, we had read these things and had that kind of stuff going. That was every young that, person should read Nietzsche. They should. Uh, Schopenhauer is sort of the one that sort of got me. Oh wow. Uh, he's a little negative, you know. He had a bad idea about women too. But but he was smart too. He knew about space time coordinates probably before Kant, and he he had a lot of funny. I don't know. He, he appealed to my negative thing because I had that kind of negative. If something will go wrong, it will. You know. <laughs> he had a little book called Pessimism. So yeah, I remember yeah. I had that in reform school. It was my Bible. You know? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good reform school Bible. Yeah. So how'd you make your way to West? Well, uh, Alan Russo, the poet was also in school, had been here, and he knew Mike McClure and Connors and the people who had come earlier. <clears throat> and he was always telling us about it, so I was going, I got drafted into the Army in, um, I can't even remember the year, 1958 or 59. And I made a deal with him. I went and, you know, they accepted me and were going to put me in the war. But I said, if you let me go to Mexico to go to school, Jim uh, uh, Davis had told me about this school, then I'll go to your army. And they said, okay, you can go. So I was on the way to Mexico. I went to San Francisco. And it was sort of uh, at the I mean, height of the thing, you know. Kansas to Mexico yeah. via San Francisco. Yeah, via San Francisco. <laughs> That's the most direct. <laughs> and um, they still had sawdust on the floor and beers were still... Uh, 15 cents and uh, you didn't yeah, want to drive through Texas <laughs> yeah well I've been to Texas we used to go to Texas all the time you know, Amarillo to pick girls up or whatever you know but um, anyway so I, I was in San Francisco and I yeah. met David Hillswood and McClure and Ginsburg just happened to be there and so you know the whole beat thing sort of inspired me and uh, I wrote all these letters back to my wife at the time and uh while I was in Mexico, she packed up and moved us to San Francisco. So that's how I actually got moved. Oh, wow. She moved there without you being there. She did. Uh, uh, the last letter I got was, I'll be on the road. We're moving there. Alden Russo had came and helped her. And uh, I moved. I went there a little before Charlie did. In the meantime, they had Alan's father, who was a psychiatrist, write a letter to the to the draft board saying I, I had been in prison and I was part gay and... If I was separated from my wife, I'd probably kill the wrong people. And uh, so they sent me a letter saying, you're out of the Army, man. You're, you're screwed up. We don't want you in the Army. Uh, I used to have it framed. I wish I still had that. It's lost. With The Stooges guys all had to do that. Yeah. They never even got in. It was, they, the, they were, it was so, right at the right. thing where you, they check you out. This guy told me about wearing war paint and... Being all wasted and stuff, you know, they'd have to put on these scenes that right, they were right. out of their heads to not get in. Yeah. So, you're in San Francisco, you're free of the service? I'm free of the service, and I was around all those people, uh, uh, McClure and uh, uh, Bruce Connors, who was a big influence. He lived two blocks from me, Bruce and I. Wow. Uh, saw each other. Dave Hazelwood had the Arhon Press, and uh, and he was publishing all those guys. He had just finished Philip Lamentia's book, Stasis, which had a picture of him shooting up heroin on the cover. Of course, at that time, that was a pretty far-out cover. <laughs> Wally did the pictures, Wallace Berman. And uh, I was doing a, uh, 
the first time I met Ginsburg, I was doing a, a print at Dave's shop. Uh, was that for work? That's what you were doing for work? Well, I, no, I was just doing it to help. Oh, for fun. You know, for yeah, fun. For art. And, art. and that's how I met Ginsburg. He was in there. He said, oh, that's some really great artwork, you know, or whatever. You know, he and Peter were there. But I didn't get to hang out with him until later after that. But did you ever have trouble with the law, Mike? Yeah, to to... I had some trouble. You had a little, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't mean to pry into that. But anyway, that uh, by having gone to reform school, I realized that it wasn't like in the movies, you know. It wasn't uh, quite as romantic. You know, I, yeah. I decided I didn't need to be uh, on the wrong side of the law. But, um, yeah, San Francisco was a great time at that time, 1959. Was Charlie on the docks then? No, Charlie hadn't uh, come. He came a few years later. I'm not sure. He might have been there before. Charlie, sometimes when I read his uh, things... I'm not sure. His viewfinder and mine are a little tilted, you know. But, uh, I, you know, whatever. No, Christine was talking about I Need More. And when I asked Ronnie about that book, he said, yeah, he remembers different. Yeah, I think we, have, we all have our own viewfinder. Charlie's the writer and the historian, so I just let him go. I don't yeah. ever say anything. But... Uh, he gives me credit for a few things, like we're in jail together, drinking oxybiotic. They came out with this uh, cough syrup. It was called oxybiotic. That uh, if you drank that, it was like taking about ten black beauties or something. You know, it had so much benzedrine in it. It was you know, boom. You know, you were just and, and talk about paranoid. You look like a big owl. You've been up for two or three days. You know. Did you? Ch you know, in the on the road book, they're chewing inhalers. Yep. Did you chew inhalers? Yes, I did. Uh, why am I in There was two or three of them. They had, they had stopped the old Benzedrine, but they still had some. And you smelled, you could smell someone that was shooing them way off because they stunk. They had this <laughs> other chemical in them, you know, <laughs> like uh, ether or, you know, menthol and weird things, you know. It would leach through their skin. Oh, it was, yeah, you would start smelling like that after a few days. It, um, it was, well, I was just looking for, I, I knew something was wrong with me, or I felt there was. And I was looking for uh, something to make me normal. I figured it was a chem I had a chemical imbalance, and I would someday find that chemical, and I'd be a balanced person. Ah. And, and I kept finding it every you once in a while. kept finding it. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it wasn't Benzedrine. That was totally the, the last. That, I think I had my early LSD experiences on Benzedrine. You know, after about, you know, you've been up for two or four days and you're, you're hearing your mother talk to the police on the phone and the, the white guys in the ambulance are waiting outside with the coats to put you in and you're looking out the window, you know. All Very this. romantic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm glad all that's gone. Yeah, yeah. Well, not quite all of it, but. What, um, what about uh, this, the L scene, the early there in, in town? In, in San Francisco, yeah. well, that was that was actually a great scene. Yeah, I, I mean, noticed. there were drugs, but not hard drugs. Uh, there was methadrine. There was an alley called Amp Alley because early methadrine was in amps, Ampules. and you break the amp yeah. and drink it or shoot it. And uh, <clears throat> there were a lot of meth heads, and so they threw these things. You'd walk through there, it'd be crunch, crunchy. <laughs> you'd be walking all over these little amps. But outside of that, you know, it's like uh, 
you would score a matchbox a pot. That's a whole ounce was unheard, or maybe a lid. They used to actually put it in lids in uh, you know Prince Albert cans. They called that a lid. And, uh, yeah, because they filled it to the lid. You didn't weigh them. It was so terrible. I remember my first connection was Alan Watts's uh, secretary, yeah. this guy, and um, and we could get matchboxes a pot to pay. We also got peyote too. I thought peyote was pretty cool. But, uh, so what about the L, L LSD? Well, it hadn't come around it hadn't yet. Come yet. Okay. Uh, it finally did, and it really blew my mind. I mean, it wasn't for me. I had a similar reaction. Burroughs and Ginsburg sort of both talked about that. I don't know what it is. I think maybe some people that have taken opiates don't do well with LSD. But uh, it, uh, you know, I had experiences like I'm, my skin is crawling with bugs and I'm being crucified and there's all these Egyptian hieroglyphs on the wall and I can read them. <laughs> But I don't care. I don't want to be there. <laughs> I you mean, never did art on it. Uh, well, it influenced it. I mean, everything that yeah, comes right. in your life influences right, right. it. But no, I didn't do Do you do think art some art. people work better on it? I did think, their art uh, on it? Well, I think it later, the people later, it did yeah. more. Uh, I went back to San Francisco with them, Big Sur. I, I got away, you know, and moved to Big Sur. But uh, when I went back... It, uh, you know, in the middle of the sort of the hippie era, yeah. that then people were taking a lot of acid and doing yeah. a lot of things. I think that door had been opened by earlier people, the old beatnik guys like Hunky from New York or the old dope fiends and the old uh, before beatniks, the Bohemians yeah. and the But the door was opened by people looking for consciousness, not necessarily to get out of things and get high. I remember Janice when. I hung out with her. We threw a dance in Monterey one time with Big Brother and the Holy Company. Yeah. And Janice had the idea that you didn't have to suffer the pains of reality. You know, you, you fell a little down, you took up. You fell a little up, you took it down. Yeah. And a lot of people had that idea then. And, of course, that idea don't work. No. The older idea was more like we're doing this for a spiritual reason. And uh, we're trying to find higher consciousness and yeah. transform our consciousness. And... Um, were the people you met like that? Was Leary like that, or was it? Well, John? Leary was uh, a whole another hybrid kind of thing. He was sort of a combination of a lot of things. So, yeah, he had that kind of thing going. He wanted to turn the whole world on, and uh, he—I I met him when I was in Big Sur. He came through there. He invited me up to Melbrook and things, and uh, it sort of scared me. I mean, it was. Yeah. I was around them when they. But that's during that period. I had quit taking drugs altogether. I mean. I smoked a little grass maybe or something, but uh, I quit taking, but I was around them when they would take acid and things. But we used to drink and plot on taking over the world. I mean, Larry had a great vibe. He was a great comedian. I loved him. Yeah. Um, now, it was an interesting time, all those people, you know. Um, well, who was the guy who was with uh, Ram Dass, Albert? Yeah, yeah, he was there too. He was Richard Albert. Yeah, there, right, yeah. right. Yeah, he's uh, suffered some strokes. I guess he's not doing so good. Yeah. The last time he was at the shrine, I went to. I wanted to go see him and say hello, but it was so many people, and you know, I didn't go backstage and do that. But uh, no, he's a brilliant man. He changed uh, that book of his, "Be Here Now." I mean, that kind of thing. I saw him after he got back from India a couple of times. You know, you saw a lot of that that East stuff coming in, right? Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> and and I joined it. Yeah, right. Um, 
1970. How far was Kerouac trying to like make a hybrid? Well, poor Jack just had drinking. Drink and but he was a Buddhist and one yeah. of the first American Buddhists. I, but seems <clears throat> kind of Catholic too. Was he kind of mixing them? Well, he had that kind of thing. I mean, Neil told me some stories. <clears throat> Neil Cassidy, you know, uh, he said the last time he went to Jack's house. And Jack was there with his mother, and he had the television on, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, with the sound off and uh, classical music playing. And uh, on the coffee table, he had about 10 brochures of mental institutions and nut houses. And he was checking them out and deciding where he was going to go. And oh. he was drinking a fifth of uh, some kind of whiskey. And Neil said that he came in and started rolling joints and said, uh, well, here's uh, Betty and Mary and... And come here in the bedroom and blah 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 and uh, I want you to meet Barry and here here's the joke you know and Jack said Neil you don't understand I got guys with uh, Kerak on their leather jackets jumping over my back gate I got, you don't understand I mean no I don't want Barry no I don't want the joint no uh-huh. but anyway um, <clears throat> and the end of the story was Jack's mother told them to leave now I don't know if that's a true story or not it probably is because Neil told me and um, I was talking to Ginsburg about it, and, and uh, he said, oh, I don't want to hear stories about Neil Cassidy. Burroughs and I started the Beatniks. You know, we, we're the ones that, you know, I mean, all those guys, you know, they were so close and so instrumental in starting all of that. Yeah. Um, I thought the Burroughs book, uh, Naked Lunch, I thought they came from Kerouac. Well, it, Kerouac was one of the people, no. I mean, <laughs> Burroughs told was me older. He named it. True, true. Well, he was one of the characters. They they were all yeah, yeah. influenced each other. Yeah, we used to read that book at Hazelwood's, Our Haunt Press, and it was just letters from Morocco or yeah, Tangiers yeah, or something. Right. And then they published some of it in the Chicago Review, and they broke the Chicago Review. I mean, they kicked all those guys off the uh, uh, off the paper for doing that. You know. And they started then a group called Big Table, yeah. which was printed. I think uh, Evergreen uh, published that. And that was like sort of the height of the writing, you know. Uh, you, you, Robert Creeley, all, the, all those early, uh, you know, Kenneth Patch and all those mm-hmm. early really great poets, uh, Ferlinghetti, McClure, Philip Whalen, all those guys were in those, uh, in those things. None of my poetry ever been. The poets always said to me, I used to write poetry. Oh, you're not reading a poet. Stick to painting, you know. <laughs> well, they, they were kind of characters, huh? Still characters. Yeah, McClure was one of, the, one of my favorite poets. He was from Kansas, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and Charlie was a poet and still, yeah. you know, a major poet, major brilliant person, you know. Did you know him with the comics? Uh, how do you mean? The zap. Yeah, I sort of helped. I was around when we did that first thing. Yeah, he did some things of mine, that those Robert Ronnie Brennan yeah. things. How did it come about? Well, he met this guy, Ralph Ackerman, yeah. who um, promoted this uh, storefront in the Mission on um, maybe 16th Street or something, and he bought an old Maldolive press. And Charlie, who had been a printer, even back in Kansas, he was a printer at Wesley Hospital. It's funny, because there were two jobs that were given, and, and one was painting a mural, and I took that job, and the other was uh, 
running a, a printing press at Wesley Hospital, and Charlie took that job. And we got those jobs out of the university. You know, they, they would give you jobs. We, sure. we needed work. And anyway, he learned how to run a press, you know, and he was a printer. So the, he published my book, Fucks, F-U-X. Yeah, yeah. And he published uh, that first Sap comic book with uh, Donahue, yeah. And he published a lot of things. We made a lot of posters and things of mine and things. Was the idea just to do it because I can do it? Hey, we got a press. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're doing it. We, oh, we made, I made that movie for, uh, with Ferlinghetti there, mm-hmm. too. There's one little scene that was shot in the middle of there. I don't know if you... Did you see the movies the other day? Yeah, yeah. Well, those girls, when they were sipping yeah. uh, and taking the, showing their breasts, back in those days, if you made a movie and you showed girls' breasts, it was probably going to be a hit just because you, you didn't see that too often or whatever. But uh, that was in, in the impressions, yeah. That was in the little thing they had. Finally, Furley Getty got mad and banged on the door and said, this is my movie, I want to be in it, you know. I was in there with the girls, but uh, so he came in and you, you see him sort of briefly. Well, he's the star of the movie. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> No, that was a great place, and uh, Ralph, I understand, just died not too long ago. Oh. But uh, <clears throat> he was a filmmaker. He made uh, this documentary of Charlie's that, uh, about Charlie that went on for years, maybe 10, 15 years. I don't know if it ever got finished or what. You know? <laughs> I mean, and he told me a story. He said there was this one movie he made. It was called Fuckface, which was um, it was of. Uh, Judy Scrooby, who was also in some of my movies, sitting on top of Charlie, uh, doing the, doing it, and and so that was just her face. And but uh, Charlie had somehow got a hold of this and had it. Uh, the filmmakers co-op and stuff. He'd been getting the money for it for years, you know. And uh, and Ralph uh, was a little upset about that. <laughs> it was his movie. But, uh, Anyway, that was back in the day. Charlie, Charlie and I always have, and I don't know, you'll probably hear this and, and give me grief, but we always had this thing of, uh, it seemed like he ended up with my girls and he was always thinking I ended up with his girls. So there was this, uh, uh, this thing. But the truth is, he always got all the girls. He, he looked like Marlon Brando, and he didn't have to say anything. He just sort of grunted, you know. And they went, oh, okay, they're off to the bedroom, you know. And I was like, me, I would talk forever. I mean, girls would finally say, I'll screw you if you'll shut up. <laughs> but what did I know? <laughs> but Charlie didn't always treat them well. So that was, you know, I, I used to pass on his girls because I, I knew he would get all upset, you know. But uh, his casts off were everywhere, you know. <laughs> anyway, that's another story. <laughs> play some music. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
you were helping me play for the movie the other day oh, here yeah. at my show. The very thought I had was, I wish I could pick up my cello and play with Mike. Then we would get You're something cello going. Player. Well, I, I played bass and then I went ah. to the cello. Of course, it's right? in fifths instead of fourths. Right, right. Uh, Jumps are more dramatic. I mean, I finally learned to scale and things. But when when uh, I had my band with uh, uh, a very short-lived band, the, the Gladstones, but it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> named after that guy uh, in Ireland. No, it was it Gladstone was, was yeah, yeah some guy for Ireland to somehow work out a deal with yeah, England through sure. Parliament. And right, right. No, it was I had a Gladstone bag. Okay. That, uh, oh. <laughs> plus our motto was "We're glad we're stoned." <laughs> but, uh, it, yeah, but it was back in the day. I threw a dance once with uh, uh, Janis Joplin and. Uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company and Quicksilver Messenger Service and our group, the Gladstones. In the city? Yeah, no, it was in uh, Monterey, the Monterey. Monterey Fairgrounds. Okay. Yeah. I think I sent you a poster for it. It was. Oh, that's uh, right. That's from that gig, huh? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was the year before the Pop Fest. I got to Festival. play once there, uh, the 2005 Monterey Pop Fest. Yeah, we, we hired the guy, the sound guy that knew the system, because we were going to, you know, he was, what, 300 or something. Janice was 150, and uh, you know, 150 a night, the whole bed, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. But, it's been uh, that, not even a tenth of the catering at these rock stars. I know, I know. they had to drive down there on their own and stuff. Me and Sam wow. Post put that band, that, I did the poster, and Sam did a lot of the promotion and stuff. You know, that, I really like that, but when the, the full tilt boogie band after, that is good. Yeah. There's something Big Brother was wild. I like Big Brother was wild. Yeah. Then Bill Graham came and told Janice, "Oh, you don't need that's, these that's guys." That's what happened. Yeah. You don't need these guys. We're we're gonna make it with strings and the whole. Yeah. yeah. And Quicksilver. Yeah, and Quicksilver. They're tiny guys. Yeah. Tiny guys. I was supposed to Chipolina. put them. Yeah, I was supposed to put them up in uh, housing. Yeah. And uh, they didn't like it. They, they went to Garapata where they had their friends and stayed in Big Sur. Yeah. Wow. But we did a so two-day concert. Yeah, over, over the Fourth of July, and the police had never seen anything like this. They were like, <laughs> you know, and I saw Janice at one time. She's talking to one of the lady cops talking something about hold the orange too close you see things hold it fine i mean i don't know what she was saying the cop was like whoa <laughs> she had never heard anything she, like that. <laughs> <laughs> she was something else really i uh i i had from a texas kind of, right hmm? from texas i think by louisiana yeah, she was she was she used to Pearl? <clears throat> she came with a guy uh, who died recently. He used to be the sound man at the uh, Winterland. He worked for Bill Graham, yeah. and she came with him. And the first time I saw her was in uh, San Francisco at the, uh, uh, right on Grant Street. She was singing a cowboy song, and everyone was saying, shut up, sit down, just because it was the material, you know. Yeah. But the minute you heard her voice, you knew she had that uh, Nellie Letcher or some kind of, far out thing R&B. yeah I had this thing happen where I was you know I was starting to tell you about my story of playing with D Donald which I'll get back to but I had this thing where I was walking in front of the stage it was about this high yeah and uh I wasn't paying any attention to her she was up there doing her thing you know 
and I was thinking about getting to the sound man, about Mike and the cello to up the sound. You know, I was thinking about something totally different. I'm walking by, and her sound just grabbed me, and it's like I stopped for a minute, and like tears or something of joy and whatever came out because it just grabbed. You know, whatever yeah, it was, one yeah. of those moments, and I had to stop and listen to her a while, and then the past I went on. But no, she was. Music's weird that way. It's happened to me where you just tears come out. Yeah, it just—it's so. It, the connection it, is so direct. Well, she had a. She, she really wanted to lay it on you, and she did. I mean, you can't get it on records. You had to be there to sort of see her. You know. Die in Hollywood, right? Uh, I heard that. Yeah, it's funny because she was a big sir, and uh, and she was up at Pat Cassidy's house, and uh, she wanted to get here to L.A. And we told her, don't go. You've been yeah. beaten up, and it's, you know. Yeah. And we talked about the whole Bill Graham thing and all that. And uh, and she couldn't drive, but she had a car. So old Jim, uh, I forget his last name, he, he said, I'll drive you. And he didn't drive. <laughs> he drove right in the ditch. So, But anyway, she called somebody. I got somebody. They towed her out, and she made it. And uh, that's the last we heard of her. I heard, yeah, right around the same time Jimi Hendrix died. Yeah. September, I think it was. Yeah. Neil Cassidy too. He he came through. He'd been on the bus, you know. Was and it I, Mexico? Well, before that, just before that, he'd been with Ken Kesey, and they'd been doing yeah. all this stuff. And I had a a place in Big Sur in Corda, and I had an extra little cabin thing that that a neighbor had who was gone. I was taking care of it. So I told Neil and his girlfriend that they could stay there, and uh, you know hang out, mellow out, and, and he didn't have any drugs or anything. I had some uh, dolophine at that time. I'd been uh, drinking uh, cough syrup and that had got taken off the market, so I had a little little edge and I found a doctor that gave me dolophine, which later became methadone. But anyway, yeah. I had these pills and so every day Neil would come up and we'd smoke some of that old uh, raggy weed <laughs> and, and eat some pills you know I would give him some of the pills and after about a week he came up one morning I said well here's he wanted the pills he said I'd rather be dead than live like this <laughs> and uh, anyway he split he, but he needed people you know he was a very people person and uh, he just I was trying to tell him mellow out you know it, it takes a while, but uh, if you'll just stay here in Big Sur and, and you know, we'll, we'll go visit people. He, was, he already had cabin fever. But, you know, it, uh, people have to do what they have to do. And, and yeah. They had a gig, and uh, he, he liked to be going. Like, Charlie's poem really catches him well. Yeah, that was yeah. a good one. Yeah. That was a good one. Yeah, because, you know what I've done with reading like some stuff when I was younger, or more young, I reread again, and a book like On the Road, when I read it again in my late 40s, seemed very much sadder than when I read it when I was more young. Ulysses too. The words didn't change, they're the same, but I hear a different voice. I seemed like Kerouac was really bumming on him. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> For leaving them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's all a sort of a Ulysses story. I mean, we're all going out and yeah. fighting the wars and coming back. The great hero goes out, leaves the vortex. Sally's fourth. Joseph Campbell had it. I mean, that. Yeah. Was, My ma likes him. The the myth. Yeah. Of the, the hero. Myth. Yeah. Yeah. 
you have to go out and fight the demons and then uh, hopefully you can bring it back or find the gold or, or unite your principles, you know, uh, right. whatever. Marry the princess or the queen. <laughs> or conk head to toe like yeah. in Mali. Better get the last word. Well, it's, it, you know, Kansas had that, uh, the Vortex thing, McClure and, mm -hmm. and Bruce Connors and, and Charlie. Charlie they, everyone sort of argues about who started it or yeah. what it's about. But uh, if you notice in the United States, Wichita is right sort Shut of. Shut Yeah. Or as they used to call it, the asshole of the world. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> okay. It's like culture comes in sort of from the coast and yeah. gets there sort of last. But yet there's some kind of primal power there or, or energy. Sure. It creates, like you were saying, a lot of those artists were from the Midwest. And, yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot of artists came from there, you know. Uh, but it's you funny, to you, with young people, uh, kind of inferiority complex about the Midwest, they want to get out as yeah. quick as possible. want to get out, right. Find, find the place. That's, like I said, the movies had been an influence. I wanted to live like in the movies, you know. Right. Well, that's... Uh, that's a myth, but uh, well, somebody once told me wherever you go, there you are. There you are, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of young people I notice can live in a town two years, three years, go to the next town, go to the next town. Yeah, they're much braver than me. Yeah, they they, they call those geographics. Yeah. Those are geographics. Right, right. <laughs> I, I heard a guy give an AA pitch once, and it was all about his geographics. He moved from Silver Lake to here to there, <laughs> then to uh, Camarillo, and then uh, you know <laughs> this nut house. Or that. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say there's a sick house in Camarillo. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there's a great uh, jazz song. Uh, by there's a good fear song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, Jordan. You know Camarillo. First, uh, first I fell down and I got up again. We just love it here. It's so fucking therapeutic. <laughs> 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 Man, did you know Charlie when he lived on the dock? worked on the docks? I knew him before. Yeah, yeah I know, I know. But during, he told me that was one of his favorite jobs. Then he said he was teaching on the East Coast. He yeah. said that was much more hell. Oh, I bet. Than working yeah. on the docks. Yeah. Well, I told you I went to the wheat harvest with one, one of the years of the, we were studying and. Uh, you know, he was a farm guy. His yeah. his father, I told you about his father, and uh, and so I was sort of the greenhorn, even though I grew up around farms and things. But I wasn't like Charlie, just jump right on a tractor and take off. And you know, I had to sort of well, wait a minute, which gear is which or whatever. Oh. <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, it was fun. Char Charlie was a he he was the boss of that scene. I mean, he knew much more about it than me. Yeah. Have you he, been to Cherry Valley? No, I've never been there. Never I should been? go. I want to go sometime. I've never been there either. Yeah, yeah. I just met somebody um, uh, recently who said he was there. said it was a great place. You know, he used to have these festivals every year, you know, poetry festivals. Uh, I've got some books, you know, where uh, different poets, they all read, you know, read. And, and they, they were doing a celebration for Ginsburg, too, you know, every so often, because Ginsburg was real close. He had a place. And of course, they have the publishing thing there too. You know, the Sherry Valley Press. And um, yeah, I need to get out there. I, I sent him a poster. I sent him a Barbertal Bob. Yeah. 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 He told me I should read that poem, but I, it's a little <laughs> too self. 
Charlie wrote this poem about me called Barber Tall Bob, and uh, that actually, I didn't take Barber Tolls, but uh, the police, every time they would arrest me, and it seemed like they always did, because once they get you, they keep doing that. And uh, they'd say, what are you on? Barber Tolls, I bet. <laughs> And I was there. I wasn't on nothing. I would have been if I could have found it. But Barbara it just. a heavy down. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I hate Barbara <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, I got that name, Barbara Bob. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and later I had a name, Ballbat Bob, because they, they were in a bar one time and they were all sort of messed up and, and uh, doing something weird. And all the hillbillies decided they would just kill them. You know, we'd been up on. <laughs> Benny's for days. Yeah. So no, I had a ball bat in the oh, car, yeah. so I came in with the ball bat and saved the day. Yeah. So that's how I got the name ball bat. Yeah. I don't know if I really hit anyone. But, uh, uh, Charlie, he's he, he's remained my closest, oldest friend. You know, which is great to have somebody at them college and things. You know? From the older days. Yeah. Every once in a while, I get somebody on Facebook from 30 years ago or something, but. Nobody, th- all of that, you know. And I even joined one of those things where you, where are they now kind of, you know, things that you have to pay money for on the web and you find all, and all the things I typed in, they didn't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was born in 1933. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's. Uh, A little bit. Yeah. The end of 33. So it's really December. So I'm 76, yeah. Are you older, Charlie? Hmm? You're a little bit older than him. Yeah, I'm a little older than Charlie. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I'm lucky I haven't had those heart attacks yet. But <laughs> he, he's healed up though with some, huh? He's uh, survived. Yeah, he's he he's uh, he's a strong presence. The last time I saw him was in Kansas. Because uh, that's a year and three months or something. Yeah. Or four yeah. months, sixteen yeah. months. Something. He lost a little weight. He got yeah. um, George. Uh, What's George's name? Lawhead. Yeah. You, he corresponds in that. He's trying to get us something back in Kansas again. Because that's where he's at. Yeah. The last time we had it, the museum did a he, thing. He's not from your generation, though. He's a younger man. No, right? he's a little younger, yeah. but he's from the academic generation, right. so he could maybe put it together. Uh, S.A. Griffin tried to do something like that, but he, it got too big. You know, he had... 20 poets and people that were all going to go to cat it would have we would have ended up in jail part of us or whatever i mean there you know you think about it but then you i mean they're very staid in a way yeah you yeah know? and of course. Uh, but then they also uh, you know they they have great art departments and they have appreciation for art but it's just on a it's, well you know you've been out in the midwest yeah kansas always played lawrence yeah yeah well it's a hipper town with the college and all Lawrence, yeah. They put Burroughs up, which was something. Yeah. I mean, they loved him, and uh, the university took care of him. And, uh, Good and basketball then, uh, team, too. Huh? Good basketball team. Yeah. No, I like playing. There's a club there called the Bottleneck. I've played like 20 times. Wow. wow. But I, in the old days, in Minutemen days, there was a club called the Outhouse, uh, and it was in a cornfield. So if you had the gig in the fall, uh, yeah, it was <laughs> kind of hard to find. Well, you couldn't find all yeah. the stocks. And then yeah, in the springtime gig, it'd be all cleared and very easy to see from, it was a roadhouse yeah, in the old yeah. days when you couldn't have a club in the town. That's right. That's the way Kansas is, yeah. yeah a lot of the country's that way. Yeah. Early punk 
was that way with rock and roll clubs. They didn't want us, so we played a lot of uh, ethnic halls, right. Ukrainian, Italian, right. Polish hall, right. VFW club, Night of Columbus, right. gay bars, yeah. clean bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have prejudice. The rock and roll people just did not want us playing. I'm, I'm talking big town, New York City, Peppermint Lounge or Dance Interior. You couldn't play a rock club. Gay discos. So these roadhouses too happened. And yeah, the you could tell houses. these things for from a long time ago. Yeah, that was the old days. Yeah. Well, you couldn't even have them in the town because the bars had to close at eleven or twelve, and uh, and, and liquor stores not open on Sunday or Saturday, maybe. I think they just didn't want it in town. I played yeah. this place you were saying, Amarillo. Yeah. It was a nautica. Well, it was an indoor swimming pool. <laughs> and Lil Richard played there in 58 yeah. and got arrested for taking his shirt off. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Arrested for taking his shirt off. Yeah. Black man takes shirt off. That's why I started touring. Christine was asking me about that. And my pop, you know, his people was from Arkansas. And when he saw these gigs I played, he couldn't believe it. He didn't know that things, even for fucked up as it was, yeah. it, there's nothing compared to those older days. I can imagine Jerry Lee and Little Richard and these guys having to tour these places. And even in the 60s, I can imagine. Yeah, Charlie and I. Joe and Mobile, he used yeah. to ride Mota and the vans, and he told me about that crazy ass, crazy ass shit. I told Pop, man, we got it easy. <laughs> A lot easier, you know, we had to deal with just some aesthetic yeah. questions with these stupid rock and roll people. These yeah, people we, had the whole society had just a weird idea. Well, when when I was young, like with Charlie, we liked jazz, so we yeah. would go to the clubs where there would be two hundred black people right. and we'd be four or five white people, you yeah. know, and hear Fats Domino or or Ray Charles or somebody, or people before them. Of course, I, you know. Um, and when I was in San Francisco, right around Fillmore or something, there'd be T-Bone Walker and a little bitty dive. I yeah, mean, yeah. I kind of have a little cafeteria or a little, you know, uh, like counter, food counter, and then a few drinks back here. But the whole thing was about this big. <laughs> but there's T-Bone Walker or, yeah. or some of those guys. Yeah. Yeah, there used to be great music in, in Kansas. Yeah, there was, a, uh, there was quite a few saxophone players and people... Charlie and I used to hang out at the Zip Club. That uh, well, the other side, Kansas City. That's where uh, Charlie Parker's from. Right. East St. Louis is Miles Davis. I saw Billy Holiday in Kansas City. I think Lester Young was Kansas yeah. City too. Yeah. He came to Kansas once, and uh, he had a gig, and we all in the, <coughs> we all went to see him. He came out on the stage and blew a couple of notes. Dropped his saxophone, <laughs> the holler, and truck it off the stage and walked off. That was it. Wow. And, and Lester was not feeling well. Everyone got all pissed off and wanted to. You have the pork man. pie hat? Yeah. yeah. No, he didn't have a hat. Oh, he didn't on. have a pork pie. Or he might have. I'm <coughs> trying to remember. He's but I know we were all that. upset. He just made a couple of notes. And sure. I saw something like that with Johnny Thunders, but <laughs> yeah. he just went out. <laughs> well, Lester got sort of holed up. Yeah, yeah. He, 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 he just—I don't know. There, there's been stuff written about it, but it's too bad that he didn't have people there to, to help him. You know, yeah. get out of the shell or some of the isolation he was in. Billy too. Yeah. She yeah. died lonely. I know. 
crazy. Well, there wasn't much understanding back in those days. No. Those are two great musicians. Christine asked about John Colt. How old was he? 40 years old. Yeah. yeah. They, they lived hard. Yeah, I, I didn't. I thought we lived hard. I didn't get to see Coltrane, but I told you I had the bass player, uh, yeah. Raphael Garrett, had played with Coltrane. Yeah. And but there with, was a, play, a place up there he used to play, Nighthawk? Or? Yeah, yeah, Nighthawk. Yeah, because right, I right. know cats, some Memphis guys, Herman Green and Calvin Newborn, they told me about seeing him there. He was a tripper. Yeah. He yeah. was intense, very quiet man. But, and you know, and for a while there, there was a guy who opened a thing called the Church of St. John Coltrane. He was there on Divisadero. It's in Hunter's Point now. And I went to some of the services. It'd be like three hours. His, his name uh, Bishop Franzo or something. He comes out there in a frock and with a tenor and he started yeah. John Coltrane for three hours. I brought my organ player once. He came up to Pete. He says, we're going to go to work. And his son's on the uh, drums and he's got his daughter on the bass and his girl's uh, daughter and wife singing with him and uh, like kind of chanting, but to Coltrane. They started out with Lonnie's Lament. Yeah. <laughs> it's just three hours. He had a little gospel at the end. It was sort of like, you know, uh, common sense stuff, not really guilt stuff, and but mainly it was just jamming on his music. And like Coltrane wasn't the, they had all these like icon things, but he was just the bringer of the fire. He yeah. wasn't like the god, he was just some messenger guy. Yeah. It was, it was a neat thing about it. He's, I guess he went to a gig and it just blew his mind. So uh, some Orthodox African church, and they let him have a kind of a affiliation or something. I, I saw him too when they lost that storefront and they were, uh, the Lutheran church gave him a thing. On, how do you say it? Gal? Golf. Golf. Oh, was well, that the Glade? There was a church right there. But yeah. Did Charlie live on that? He street? did. He lived right on Gulf Street. But yeah. that, the one we're talking about is more down towards the Tenderloin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right in the Tenderloin. And that guy took that church, and, yeah. and it, I went to it once. Talk about tears shoot out of your eyes. They're jamming. You yeah. know, I mean, it became huge. There's like hundreds of people, and they play a lot of music, and then suddenly someone gets up and says, yeah, and I have AIDS, and I was in prison for 20 years, and now I'm saved, and... Hallelujah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. you hear some stories. Ten yeah. line is still really intense. Yeah, but the music... What was it like in those days? Um, in the 60s? The what? Tenderloin. Oh, the Tenderloin, yeah. Was it always... It's wow. always been intense. I stayed wow. away from it. We yeah, hung yeah. out in North Beach. I mean, mm -hmm. the Tenderloin. I had this girlfriend who had a place there, and the guy next door to her died, and she kept complaining about the smell yeah. <laughs> you know? and they didn't do anything she's an artist she uh she's having a show with fraser uh honor fraser uh, coming up uh sherry martiche is her name but anyway she ended up taking some of those special kind of flies that show up when someone's dead and making a whole piece with the flies all of she, she used it in her art but she said all her clothes and all her stuff she had to move you know it was yeah. like just two they finally that's, found the guy dead there that's funny you speak about that because uh, you know we're talking about the jail stuff and i had to do some community service at a morgue at uh, county morgue right uh, by where they saved me and like, you know, there's maggots coming out of these bodies. I got to wash off the trays and their ropes and their gowns. And there's these guys I'm working with, you know, that 
got the, the honor, the privilege to serve alongside. And then, see, when you die, they finally get a chance to come out. And like, I tried, once I just tried to say, no, no, you know, some flies laid their eggs there. And like the maggots are always in us. And they're just waiting for us to die. <laughs> so they get to come out. I didn't want to argue them. They were so intense about it. I was like, okay. That's why we stay alive. Keep the maggots in there. Keep Some philosopher had about a, a maggot in each year, and they used to argue or something. <laughs> it might have been Claudio Dorado or one of those guys. I don't know. He's always talking about the maggot this year. I know there's some maggots that they use if you get a burn and stuff. They know how to. I'm doing a radio show. <laughs> I, I love Supreme. Bother. I hardly get. Yeah, my sister got me this because she got tired of circling the airport to pick me up from the tour. <laughs> I call it the leash. Yeah, I had one for a while, and then the, I, I don't use it, you know, mm. so I just I keep having to pay for it. I said, finally, I let it go, you know, but... Uh, oh, you cut you cut off some of their revenue streams. I know. Uh, it, it, I mean, it got crazy. You were seeing homeless people with cell phones. <laughs> You're like, why? I'm really behind the times here. I can't afford a cell phone. I don't have a cell phone. Thank you for talking to me, Bob. Oh, thanks for coming in and hanging out. Christine, thanks for talking with me. Laurie for making all this happen. Uh, all you people for coming. It's uh, been May 16, 2010, Watt from Pedro show. Keep your powder dry. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>